0: Today's guest on the podcast is Chris Tuff. He's the author of the book, The Millennial Whisperer. And you guys do not want to miss out on this episode. First of all, this guy has got the most amazing energy. I mean, we talked offline. We could have talked for four days. I mean, maybe I could have talked to him for four days. I just feel like I want to squeeze so much more information out of this guy. He's just awesome. Awesome. So much much amazing perspective on... Everything from business to personal to professional. So enjoy this episode, you guys, and don't miss out on the opportunity to listen to this interview with Chris Tuff.
1: Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success.
0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Same Twenty Four Hours podcast. I'm your host Meredith Atwood. I'm so excited about today's guest, Chris Tuff is here. Hi, Chris.
1: Hi. Oh my
0: gosh, I am. Like I said before we got started, I'm always stoked about my guests. But I have been when our mutual friends Brent and Kyle Peace told me about you and your book, I thought this is an awesome topic. This is going to be a great interview, and I can tell just from chatting before that we're gonna have a good time so yay! yeah i'm fired
1: up thanks for having me on
0: all right so you guys chris is the author of the new ish book um the millennial whisperer
1: you know you and i i think have been in been through probably So I'm actually right on the cusp of being a millennial. I'm I was born in 1980, 39. So uh, for those that don't know, uh, millennials are 38 years old to 23 years old, um, born between 81 and 96. So we um, I'm actually, but I'll tell most people that deep down I'm more of a millennial than most millennials. And um, <laughs> you know, one of the biggest things, and and why I really. Wrote the book is um, I, we've adapted so much within our lives and and in in the world that we live in. I mean, just look at the adoption of technology and how that's molded our lives. But we haven't changed the way that we run our businesses, and so. Um, One of my favorite quotes is millennials aren't the problem. They just expose all the problems. And I think that is probably one of the best. I want this book to act as a catalyst to change our organizations. And, And one of the biggest things is that, you know, this is a give and take kind of relationship for not only millennials, but Gen Z and and how they relate up to boomers and Xers. Um, but also the other way around, you know, what can boomers and Xers learn from millennials? And okay, that's essentially okay. plus, what the book's plus, about. Plus. Yeah.
0: Xers, Zers, boomers. So boomers are like the, they're like our parents because I'm your Ex- age.
1: Exactly. Okay.
0: And then, so I was born in 79. So am I a Zer or an Xer? You're an Xer. Okay. What's
1: Z? Cut so it? you've got boomers and then you've got xers okay you know gen x right and then you've got millennials and then you have gen z gen z just now starting to hit the so these are marketplace oh, yes so these are exactly 18 year olds 18 to your children.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So there's the – so I, I had a moment of panic because I was the editor of my yearbook, and I wrote an article on us being Generation X, and I thought, oh, my gosh, did I get that wrong?
1: <laughs> you, no, you got it right. Okay. You got it <laughs> like, right.
0: Oh, I take so much pride in my yearbooks. Totally.
1: Status, you know? Totally. Okay. So,
0: you, so continue.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and, and what really inspired – you know, similar to, I think, some of the life changes that you've been going through and what inspired your book, uh, I kind of hit rock bottom, and I started the book uh, three years. Years ago. Um, And it was during that time that I made some big changes in my life. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the biggest changes was my own metric of success. Um, I, like you, am also a people people pleaser. Um, But also, my metric of success was beating my brothers in the game of life. And oh, yes, I changed my metric. Um, and this rock bottom moment, and um, I changed it from beating them in the game of life to, you know, success being judged on a daily basis and um, being judged through the lens of impact made. So when my head hits the pillow at the end of the day, what is it that makes that day successful? And I either passed or I failed. And I can um, wholeheartedly say that every single day, for the last three years since changing that metric, I've had a successful day. you um, well, but-
0: change that metric? I mean, you don't have to go into rock bottom, but what made you come up with that is the new metric? Because I talk about that in my book a little bit, like that you have to come up with your own definition of what success looks like. Success can be objective, sort of, but really, if we're going to have any sort of real change in our life, we have to have our subjective own view of success. So sure. How did you come to that?
1: Well, so, I mean, for me, I've always known my own purpose, which is to inspire and connect. And I knew that my metric had to hone in on that as my strength and passion zone, you know, to inspire people and connect with people. And so it the the success piece just came directly out of it. And, you know, I think monetary and and all that stuff got th- I mean, I at least had to throw that out the window because it's a zero sum game um, status and all that stuff. So to me, it actually came pretty easily and implementing it was pretty easy. But getting there was the tough part. But it was with that I turned from being, you know, I'm at a I, I'm a partner at an ad agency. We're three hundred and seventy people. 90% millennials, and I was the ringer. You know, I was the Don Draper, if anyone's seen Mad Men. And like that was my role. And uh, I was flying all over the world, um, you know, hobnobbing with the Sheryl Sandbergs and the Zuckerbergs and, you know, drumming up new business and actually six, su- you know, succeeding in that domain. But uh what I found was with this metric as a metric of success change, I moved from being the point of the arrow to being A true servant leader and almost coach. Mm. And it was, I went to bed, I, I would go to I would come home so fired up and go to my wife. And you know, I have two daughters, seven and nine. And I would just be so excited about the impact that I was starting to make in these people's lives. As we took down this, this curtain of you know i think in our corporations we 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 feel like oh you can't be friends with your people and you got to leave your personal stuff at home i i took down that mm-hmm. curtain and i became really good friends with everyone on my team and we we had therapy thursdays where i was like all right everyone i'm <laughs> going to therapy who wants to come like yeah, you feel free to do it you know and then if anyone has questions i brought in a mindfulness coach i started to do some pretty um what many people would say, crazy things. And it was seven months into this that I was like, holy cow, this things we have, we're now probably one of the most successful piece, you know, successful in terms of growth, parts of our organization. Um, you know, our culture within my department is, is, uh, um, contagious and everyone kind of is clamoring to be a part of it. And I was uh, at an executive men's retreat in North Georgia, where the average age was probably like 45, Um, really well-known kind of leaders in Atlanta. I didn't know them at the time, really. Um, This was just kind of something I went to to better me as a person and father and all that. And um, I was introducing myself around the fire that first night. And I said, you know, I don't really know what I do at my agency, but I've kind of become the millennial whisperer. (laughs) And I went and shared my story about hitting rock bottom and changing my metric of success and all that stuff. But I sat down by the fire and the guy leading the retreat, who I didn't know at the time, Tommy Breedlove, he kicks me and he looks at me. He goes, "You better write that book." And I was like, "What yes. book?" He goes, "The Millennial Whisperer." And I was like, "Oh." And then so some of the other guys. Um, I don't know if you have uh, the Bert show in. in yes, Europe.
0: I saw so, your video.
1: <laughs> so yeah. So which so Bert was on that retreat and has become a friend. But he was like, dude, I'm having the hardest time with some of these millennials, you know, talk to me about some of the things you do. And so I started talking about talking about some of the tactics and I get a call from Bert and a couple others about two weeks after returning from this awesome retreat. And they're like, Chris, your stuff works. Like we're seeing happier people. We're seeing, you know, very tangible things associated to a few small changes and it was then that I, I actually went back in my text messages to Tommy, who's now one of my closest friends um, in the world, and he wrote the forward to my book. Um, and I had texted him, "I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this thing." And uh, fast forward, you know, we've we I think we've we've sold close to fifty thousand copies uh, in six months, and. Um, you know, by all kind of traditional book metrics, That's this thing amazing. is, amazing. but, you know, and I like, once again, I come down to like where I get, it, it does come down to that metric of impact and, you know, it's some crazy things have started to happen. I mean, I, I spoke at an event where I did the math in the room and just in one speech, we probably impacted over 10 million employees' lives, which, you know, it's starting to have that compounding effect. Right, and right. You know, I also, I think another important part, and you'll probably have questions around this, but I put it all on the line for this thing. I mean, I took a yeah. uh, $200,000 short-term um, high-interest loan, which I still haven't paid off. Um, because when you, I mean, well, I, I'm a little out of control with all, a lot of, <laughs> I'm all in, you know, everything's black or white, which right. I struggle with gray, which I'm working on. Um, but, uh, so I, 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 I walked the talk in terms of, um, you know, really checking every box. Uh, and what's exciting right now, what we're working on is the digital curriculum. So, um, oh, that's
0: good. Good.
1: Can really scale this thing without me having to leave my family to do speeches all over the place. Right. So that's right. my quick like, like we can riff off of all that.
0: Uh, yeah. So um, it's funny you mentioned kind of laying it on the line. Um, I have a friend who texted me two days ago and she's like, have you read Daring Greatly recently? And I said, no, Brene Brown's book. And I said, no. Um, yeah. And she goes, is that like a no thanks? Like, shut up. Leave me <laughs> alone. Because I just kind of dismissed it. And oh. and I said, no. OK, fine. What do, what, do, what do I need to read? And she pointed me to the chapter and it said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically, unless your entire self-worth is on the line, you are not being courageous or vulnerable. And I thought, well, that's why I feel completely icky right now, because my yeah. entire self-worth is on the line, like with kind of the next few months and kind of how I've structured myself. I'm a I'm a former attorney. I gave up my career and all of this to like chase this dream of being a writer and a coach and a podcaster. And you know how well this stuff pays. Like people don't realize just how lucrative being an author really is. <laughs> and so it's hard, you know, but I feel like I'm, I'm laying it on the line and that's when, when you know you're doing the right thing, even though, you know, like you said, you you took out a loan and you're propping yourself up with all this and it's scary. Um, um.
1: Totally. And listen, it's also part, like I could chart the now. I've helped a handful of friends also with their kind of publishing journey. You're at the worst stage yeah. because you don't know, but seriously, I mean, you don't know whether or not it's good. You don't know whether or not it's going to be a success. And, you know, I mean, we could talk a lot about books um, yeah. and the publishing journey and um, some of those things, but know that your words regardless of how perfect the words are the general things are in there so that's great the
0: summary is fine
1: (laughs) and a lot of people here's the other thing a lot of people are lazy and don't read so where you're going to make your biggest impact is what you're going to take from the book and put in your speeches that then will scale the message and, and your platform and so um you know i applaud you for putting it out there and there's there isn't I don't think there is anything as vulnerable as writing a book. I really do not think that. I mean, it is as close to, you know, what I would say the essence of vulnerability is. Um, And so with that, I think the also the winds come not out of the gates, but with time. And Dan Miller has kind of taken me under his wing uh, who wrote. Forty-eight days to the work you love in two thousand five. He was way ahead of his time. Yeah, I heard which- Dan
0: speak at a conference a couple years ago. He's awesome. He's
1: the he's the best. He invited uh, Tommy and I actually to go stay with him and just riff with no real agenda, and um, we've gotten to know each other really well. But the best piece of advice he gave me, well, one was what his whole platform is, is that I say life needs to be a ruthless pursuit of passions and the rest will fall in place. Mm. And, uh, he, he's built a whole career off of that. And some of his stories are just amazing about how he's helped manage people and coach people into this place of their zone of excellence within passions. But the other piece that he gave me that I'm going to give to you is don't judge the quote unquote success of your book with your first week, or your first six months, or even your first year in terms of sales. It's what happens after three years. And not only that, but only 2% of your um, overall income will end up coming from your book if you're building the things the right way. And that's yeah. coming from a guy that sold millions of books with millions of dollars coming. So right. uh, we can we can offline that. I, I, yeah, I've got a lot sure. of... Uh,
0: it's just, you know, it's up. the whole thing. and the, And we can tie this back to your book. But Um, the whole idea of uncertainty and the idea that we can we think we have certainty and we you know can control things but when you really let go and allow the uncertainty to just kind of float around you and to just you know chill with it (laughs) that's a hard lesson that's a hard and that's you know that's where you're at in publishing but let's go back (laughs) to um when you started at your PR firm at your ad is PR firm at it. I don't want to say it right. At an agency. agency. Um, When you started making these big changes in your little uh, part of it, in the domain that you managed, what did the other partners say to you? What was the overall reaction company-wide?
1: Um, here goes Chris reinventing himself again. Let's see if it sticks. (laughs) I think was what it was. Um, you know, I tend to reinvent myself. I get bored easily. Mm -hmm. And, um, You know, I go back to when I help people work on their purpose statements, which if you don't have a personal purpose statement, then you better get writing and working. Um, And it's it's one of the things I do with everyone on our teams. But one of the things I say to do is go back to your, you know, all of your report cards that you've gotten through school and take out some of those comments, because I bet what happened in third, second, fifth grade, what came through there is still true today, because that's where you're actually going into your the core of your heart and I go back to my whole th- thing and um, I had some pretty bad report cards in like third, fourth, fifth grade and, you know, easily distracted, all this stuff. But one thing that came through and has stuck with me ever since is Chris's enthusiasm is contagious. And, um, you know, that then manifests itself is uh, from my brother saying, Chris, I think you have a passion disorder. And I was like, is that a bad thing? <laughs> and he's like, no, it's great. And passions evolve, right? And, um, you know, this other piece that I, I'm starting to talk a lot about, which I get really excited about is this idea of currencies. And so for a company to see me, right, my whole currency at 22 squared, where I'm a partner was built upon being the digital media and social media expert. You know, I was one of the first people to work with. Mark Zuckerberg in 2006 on his first products. I had one of the first viral videos to get over a million views with me filming my engagement running down the street of Atlanta, putting it on ChristopherTuff.com. It got us on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. We were on Good Morning America. Crazy stuff happens when you're in that zone of excellence slash passion point, right? And, you know, the idea is that you're building a currency to match a need out there, which for me for so long was this kind of digital, social, emerging media stuff. But we change as humans. You know, we go through times where um, crisis catalyzes change in a lot of places, right? We develop, we evolve, and with that, our currencies follow. And I moved from the digital and social guy to how do you bring more love and connection into the world? But that's everything that I'm doing. I don't care whether it be with my daughters, my wife, everyone around me. The people I lead, my organization, the, you know, when I speak in front of thousands of people, that is my whole platform. Mm -hmm. And nothing is going to stop me from that. And um, when your intentions are so pure, I think that the best ends up actually coming. But that's all to say. And this is kind of what I'm figuring out now, to be honest, is that to go directly from an old currency, which, you know, the digital and social thing to this new currency, there's actually a lot of overlap. And if we're doing a good job of reinventing ourselves constantly and pursuing some of those things of evolving passions and and drive and purpose, then we've got to make sure that we're not going all the way to the left to all the way to the right. And I say that a long winded response to your question of what did everyone think about you um, making these changes? I think they embraced it. um, And and part of the great, you know, what makes us different is we're kind of like family. And so they, they gave me the freedom to take a month off, figure my stuff out and come back and reinvent myself. Um, and they continue to work with me as we kind of find this blurred line between what's book and what's agency. And, um, and, you know, you can hear it from me now. I'm still trying to figure it out, but all I can say is it's, it's working, you know, we're, we're talking to some of the biggest and best, most impactful and less impactful, biggest and best companies in the world. And, um, You know, once again, I go back to this thing of if your passion is driving you um, and your intentions are pure, nothing can stop you. And Meredith, you're going to get knocked down nine million times between now and published date and six months into having launched your book. Um, And resilience and, and, and what helps you bounce back is a ruthlessness to pursuing I think that passion and drive, and you've already taken a lot of those big risks uh it sounds like and yeah, so and I
0: think my my um kind of route is while i'm wor- working on the book and doing the promotion around that. I coach women one on one and so I get to do exactly what you like. My passion is I don't want any woman to hurt or man for that matter, but to hurt unnecessarily, if I can share my story and tell them what I did to get out of my own way. And so I'm able to work one on one with women. And that drives me every day. Because, you know, the results are and I don't want to say results, but the impact is tangible, like because you're talking to someone and you're you're wat- watching them on Facetime and you're seeing their joy or their sadness, and that's that's enough to drive me. Whatever this book does, like whatever, <laughs> whatever. I love it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I
1: love it. And yeah, we, you know, the term "burn the boats." Yes, Tony Robbins. And you know. <laughs> um and where that actually comes from um is actually dan miller gave me a whole he actually when i went was to it stay dan with miller him
0: and lifted by tony
1: <laughs> oh well no well so if you go back to um to kind of like the core books that a lot of these um leaders end yeah. up reading yeah. um one of the books is um was published way back god what's it called i'm reading it oh, right now I know
0: what you're, is it napoleon hill
1: Yes. What's yeah. it called? Um
0: well, a man think no mm, like Wait.
1: though a man
0: thinketh or maybe that's not the word. Think r- and grow rich. Think and
1: grow rich. I so got it. <laughs> I started reading that. I didn't realize where Burn the Boats comes from the story. But you know, it was an army that was going to invade and they wanted to seal their fate as the um successful um conquerors or You know, warriors in this sense, by burning the boats, so no one could retreat. So they went in on the boats. They, I didn't realize that that's what it was all about. And listen, some of us are going
0: burning some perfectly good boats.
1: (laughs) Totally, totally. And it's like, do you really have to burn the boats in this? Like, and like, I am, I am the first person i think to go get the gasoline and the lighter being like all right let's do this thing
0: i am and, too chris like i just think like once you've decided like what else is there
1: um a hundred percent but you know what i'm learning is no, i'm learning restraint. <laughs> you know and yeah that, i mean i don't do anything halfway right i'm either yeah. gonna passion uh, disorder Totally. I'm not going to run three miles. I'm going to do a marathon. You know, I'm not going to get a tattoo. I'm going to get a full sleeve. Right. I'm not going to write a book. I'm going to get a bestseller. You know, I'm not going to. like. And um, and it's like I take a deep breath because I think we put ourselves under such ridiculous expectations and pressures that aren't necessarily, um, well, both healthy or um, needed. And um, so be careful as you go into this thing, um, what I tell everyone who's writing a book is at the top of your mirror, write Why you're writing this book and go back to it every single day because things spiral out of control. I mean, I've, you know, I've now put in almost probably half a million dollars into my book and I've made a lot of good decisions and, and, you know, a handful of bad ones with that investment. But (laughs) Um, I sometimes wish I had something to go back to when <laughs> thinking about where to invest. Right. Um because things get out of control as you get more competitive and, and all these other things. So
0: sure, sure, absolutely. The why is always important and the why is important in pretty much every area of your life, I think, if you're gonna survive. <laughs>
1: totally. And bounce back. Yeah.
0: Right. So let's let's actually go back and talk about millennials. Sure. What is the deal with millennials? Because that's I mean, your whole book is is about that. But why do they get a bad rap? And what are you whispering?
1: So one (laughs) of the things that yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, and listen, my whole thing, I'm not like the perfect leader. I'm not Mm -hmm. the the essence of my book is more about you know, it's all based on research, lots of it. I worked with Vanderbilt um, on all the research uh, and it's all cited throughout. Um, but, you know, one of the things is it, it this isn't I'm not guessing as to what how to lead these next generations. It's it's based in real data. Mm-hmm. Now, I bring it to life with stories and tangibles and takeaways, which is, I think, the art of um, and what makes, I think, this book a little, you know, pretty special because you can get immediate impact without investing a bunch of money. Um, So I think that's one thing. But, you know, for for, for me, it is um, it's what are those I hate when you read a book or you hear a speech and you don't have the okay. what can I do now? And I want everyone to walk away constantly with ideas of, okay, how can we actually start impacting our culture now? Um, But one of the things I say is, millennials have just gotten a bad rap. And uh, we got to stop using uh, millennials as a synonym for young and inexperienced. Because the unfortunate thing is, millennials are young and inexperienced. And guess what? The same thing happened when Gen Xers were entering the marketplace. The same thing happened when the boomers were entering the marketplace. And if you go back to the core we're actually a lot more in common than you think. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the key things that millennials and Gen Z are looking for, uh, I love using uh, flexible uh, work environment being kind of one of the, you know, work flexibility is one of the big ones. They work from where they want to work and as long as they can get the job done. And one of the biggest discrepancies that I hear from leaders is that um, I will ask them, do you want flexible work? Because it's the number one thing that you can put into place right now and have a huge impact on retention as well as recruitment. And, uh, what I hear time and time again is, um, no. And then it's like, okay, why? Well, I had to do it this way. Why don't they? Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: you take that same thing and you
0: hard knocks
1: totally. And you switch it, but you switch it and you say, so I hear you have a millennial child. Is that correct? And it's like, yeah, you know, I've got a twenty-seven-year-old uh, or twenty-eight-year-old, and uh, and then you turn it and say, well, would um, would you s- say that you support them in their pursuit of their next job with flexible work? They say, absolutely. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> my kid. And it's kind of like it's hilarious because that is um, that's kind of what we're up against. And I hear time and time again that uh, after reading the millennial whisper in my book, uh, uh, people will say, I now understand my kids a lot better. Right. Uh, but, you know, one of the big things that I do set out in the book is, first of all, we need to, to take this massive generation and split them into two different generations, older millennials and younger millennials. And what makes them different is what they grew up around. Older millennials had beepers in college. They didn't even have a (laughs) cell phone, okay? That's right. Younger millennials were given an iPhone with a Snapchat account at age 13. So one, what makes them two very different generations is that. And number two is when the recession of 2008 either hit their parents for younger millennials or them in the marketplace for older millennials. And it's really with those two um, influences that make them very different generations in terms of uh, what they're looking for and and how to create an environment where they thrive. So that's one thing. So the other piece is then let's not focus on what they're looking for from the workplace, because actually, if you look at the number one thing that millennials and Gen Z is looking for, it's no different than any other generation. It's pay and benefits. Where it's Mm -hmm. a little bit different is work culture's number two. Work culture never came up in a Gen X uh, survey because they saw their parents. Because there was no culture. Exactly. it it (laughs) It was You know what the the culture... (laughs) Yeah, it was a grind. And then it was a badge of honor when you sent that email at three in the morning because you were grinding it out the hardest. And it's because of the product of what they were born into which their parents got the watch for staying at the place for (laughs) seven... Right. So, 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 you know, it's, um, I think so, but where my book, where I like to emphasize is what are they looking from leaders? You know, what is it that, what are the things that we can do as leaders that can change the environment? Um, and so number one, what they're looking for is inspirational leadership. And you know, you take something like inspirational leadership, and you ask any leader. Um, let's just say Bob has thirty millennial and Gen Zers on his team, and it's like Bob. Um, so we hear that according to the 2018 Deloitte Millennial Survey, the number one thing your workers are looking for is inspirational leadership. Now, Bob, would you consider yourself an inspirational leader? Bob will say. Hell yeah! You know, they just light up, they laugh at everything I say. You should see my, you know, status meetings, blah, blah. It's like, thanks, Bob. And then you go to two people on Bob's team. And they're like, listen, (laughs) we got to figure out if Bob's an inspirational leader. Would you consider Bob an inspirational leader? Their first question is always going to be, is Bob going to find out? Right, right. You know? And so when it's like, no, Bob's not going to find out. It's like, hell no, he's not. And so that... I think, is such an important piece coupled with, I think, a lot of introverts think that only extroverts can be inspirational. And there's a lot of ways to be inspirational. And I talk a lot about that in the book and tactics that we can use to do that. You know, a big part of inspirational leadership is just rewarding and recognizing your people. So what are the things that we can put into place to reward and recognize our people constantly um, as well as other pieces? But, um, you know, so inspirational leadership, I actually created a 360... Um, uh, millennial leadership assessment that, uh, ranks based on eight key tenets of coming out of the research that we did, inspirational leadership being one of them, but also opening it up from a 360 point of view where people on the team can actually comment on their leaders with such things. So inspirational leadership, I could talk obviously a lot about, but you know, the other pieces that are so important are, you know, autonomy and transparency and purpose, um, And any one of those we could um, wrap on, but I'll let Mm -hmm. you kind of choose your picture from that. Autonomy. Yeah, I mean,
0: I kind of want to talk see if we can talk about autonomy and purpose, because I want to go back to the personal purpose statement and kind of what that is. And I think autonomy and purpose can be they're obviously closely related.
1: Totally, totally. So. Which one do you, you want me like, to hit? But, yeah,
0: let's talk about the personal purpose statement. What What is that and what, what does it entail and how do you write one?
1: Sure. So the first thing that I'll tell anyone, especially as you look to Gen Z, if you don't, as a corporation, have your own purpose that is front and center, that is bigger than your bottom line um, or stock ticker um, symbol or whatever it is then you better get working on it because you're not going to be able to attract younger millennials and Gen Z without that. And so, um, you know, I go back to our purpose statement as a corporation is um, together we give rise to change. And so when you put your purpose statement in place, also make sure you have the tactics to support it because there's nothing worse than hypocrisy because you'll get <laughs> called out in two seconds if you don't walk that talk. And so we actually – give so an example of that, living that purpose, is we give all of our employees five days off to donate their time to any nonprofit of their choice. Um, and – but. So we walk the talk in that sense. And and then I take it to the next level where I will work with everyone on my team to come up with their personal purpose statements, which we will do over a six-week period of time. And actually, in my book, I have a list of questions that I have people fill out. And usually, that gets us pretty close to where a purpose statement will live. Um, I'll also reference Simon Sinek's uh, This Is Your Why uh, and the workbook if we can't get there on, off of this one shooter. Um, but the key thing with the purpose piece is that once you have your purpose in place and we announce it to everyone and that you're proud of it and you're willing to kind of wear it on your sleeve, then we got to make sure that we're filling that purpose with something. So what we'll do is we'll take someone's job description and day-to-day and put that down on a piece of paper. And then we'll look at uh, their... Uh, um, their purpose statement and then we'll figure out what their side hustle is. And, um, I tell everyone that you got to embrace your employees side hustle because, you know, and you know, we just say 20% of your time can be, um, in line with your side hustle and your side hustle can be almost anything as long as it's not competitive with our agency. And, uh, we've had some people donate their time to, um, local nonprofits Um, We've had um, a woman whose purpose was to make women feel more confident in their own skin. We had one woman create a clothing brand. And, you know, one of the big things is that you hear time and time again that this next generation will hop around, um, job hop, because. Um, they think that there is this life on the other side where the grass is always greener, and one of my big things is you know allow them to scratch that itch of their purpose with giving them the time and the opportunities and resources to pursue side hustles. Um, but also you know it's through that that they learn how difficult it is to make these things a success. I mean, Meredith, you're you're living it right now, yeah, and right. it's roller coaster. Um, and so you know. And that so that purpose stuff, like, let's scratch that itch. Let's make sure that we're we're putting things in place that they can do that. But it also leads me to kind of that give and take relationship of what this next generation needs from us. I call it my 70 30 rule, which is that, you know, 30 percent of your job is going to suck. 30 (laughs) percent is going to be in this zone of suckness. And I mean, for me, it's anything in Excel. 70 percent should fuel (laughs) you up fire you up, keep you going. But my 70/30 rule is let's take your job description, let's figure out what's in your 70 and what's in your 30. So when you're actually doing those things that are in your 30% zone of suckness, then you will actually move get it done until you get to the other side. Mm-hmm. And you know, I talk a lot about in the book about the influence of social media, especially on the younger gener- you know, the younger millennials and even all of us um, being that we have this idea that this, um, perfect life exists outside of our own walls. And a lot of people jump ship to pursue that. And the reality is, is that there's no such thing. And we've got to constantly stop comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And you look at all of the statistics that are coming out that this thing is just compounding on itself, um, And, you know, I I actually, you know, part of the vulnerability and transparency piece of being a leader is me admitting to all of my employees that I have been in your shoes. Like I hired a fishing guide four years ago in Sun Valley, Idaho. I call it my river runs through it story where I hired this guide and I turned to him. I gave him 600 bucks and I said, listen, I don't really feel like fishing. I don't care about fishing. I don't like fish. But I want two (laughs) Instagram shots. I want a picture of the trout with the net behind it. I don't care if you catch it. I catch it. He catches it. I don't care. And then I want another shot of me Brad pitting it in the river with the river flowing and the mountains in the background. Um, And that's it. And the guy turns to me dumbfounded being like, wait, so you're going to spend 600 bucks on an Instagram post? I'm Like, no, it's like three hundred bucks each. Let's go. <laughs> and I admit that to all of my my employees because like that's a low moment, but it's a reality. And we've got to move away from what I call this pinterest station of a generation. You know, your first day of school, Abigail's holding up that perfect little chalkboard and you know, her <laughs> favorite food. And I mean, th- this it is absolutely exhausting. It's exhausting, right. And so, Let's all take a deep breath. <laughs> Let's <laughs> remind ourselves what our purpose is and like also understand that we're damn lucky to be able to pursue some of those things, you know, in yeah. our case at the place where they also pay us. And that's so you have-
0: awesome. Gosh, I love the idea of fostering the side hustle. I mean, I did the side hustle for eight years while I was a practicing attorney and I thought I did a good job keeping it separate and then my boss at the last firm I was working at, she's like, "I just want to tell you, I love reading your blogs." And I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I didn't know you read them, you know." And she sent out one of my race reports to firm wide, and I thought, "Oh, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die." Um, but when I turned in my resignation, when I leapt out of the legal profession. I told her, I said, you know, it's not about you or the job or anything. It's you've been wonderful to me. And she said, well, if you weren't going to quit, I was going to fire you because you oh, don't need to be God. doing this. <laughs> this is not your purpose. Wow. It's so funny because she contacted me a month ago and she said, you know, that big, and I give her a, an accent because she's got this great accent. She said, you know, that big convention we go to in Colorado every year um, with the firm. And I said, yeah. And she said, I want to put your name in the hat for the keynote. And I said, are you kidding? I would love to do that. That would be such an honor to come speak to my former, you know, industry. And and they bit. And so I'm actually giving the keynote at this big conference in our industry in Vail, Colorado in November. Awesome. And I thought, this is just like the most amazing thing. And it's because like once she told me she, she saw my side hustle and she kind of affirmed it. I mean, it, it changed everything. Sure. And, and sure, I, I left the firm, but they're fine, you know. <laughs>
1: Totally. It or not,
0: people will be okay without you.
1: Well, and think um, about how many people do these side hustles, and then they figure out how. What is it? Ninety percent of all startups fail. Like they right. figure out how hard it really is, or yeah. they. Um, we call them boomerangs, where they end up leaving, and then they call. Uh, as, you know, it's usually around eight months later that they're like, actually, hey, can we come back to work there? Because where we're at, or what we're doing, <laughs> or I ran out of money. Um, it's right. not that great. Um, <laughs> so you know, I, 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 and I think, you know, I, I think it's something that if you, if you actually look at any of the most successful startups, they have very structured programs around side hustles. Um, you know, Google calls it their 20% rule, uh, Facebook it's known as their fuel program, F U E L. Um, uh, and so I think it's, you look at where some of their most innovative and successful projects have come from. They've come from these areas. Yeah. So um, people will be like, Oh, well, what's the ROI of that? And you know, my immediate <laughs> response is, is, is happiness and retention. Right. Um, and then so every once in a while, you'll, you'll probably get a byproduct that is, uh, is, uh, has a true ROI associated to it. But um, anyways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about autonomy.
1: Sure. So, I went in, and um, I looked within myself because, once again, I am more of a millennial than most millennials. And autonomy for me is because um, it, it's it's just not being micromanaged. And I go back to it was I, I was, it was about five years ago, and um, my wife and I were on our way back from our holiday party, and my wife kind of looks at me astounded and impressed uh, and said, Chris, I can't believe you've stayed in one place for five years. Like, that's pretty impressive. Like, what, what do you, why, how do you think they've been able to keep you? And my immediate response was, well, they've given me a long enough leash to be entrepreneurial, but enough structure that I feel like I'm constantly becoming a better leader. And I think it's with that um, given, you know, I guess, give and take or, um, you know, uh, well-roundedness that I would say is best representative of what autonomy means to me. But I went looking for it. And, um, in researching for the book, I went to the most reliable of resources, um, called Google and I Googled (laughs) number one boss for millennials. And sure enough, Forbes called this guy, Ben Kirshner out of Philadelphia as the number one boss for millennials. So I found his, um, his, his cell phone and gave him a call and told him about what I was doing. And he was super fired up and he has a, uh, organization of over a thousand millennials, mostly millennials. And we started talking about autonomy. And I said, Ben, what does autonomy mean to you? And he, his immediate response was, have you ever heard of the term Under Armour uses protect this house? And I was like, kind of remind me. And he goes, well, Under Armour had this campaign where it was um, protect this house. And it was all about the culture and, you know, it's uh, the importance of protecting the house with, you know, when it comes time for game time. And so anytime. That I speak in front of all my employees or my team or a group, I will remind them it's up to them to protect this house. And if you have a bad culture fit, it's up to them to protect this house. When it comes time for unlimited paid vacation, which they do, when someone needs to cover for the other person, it's up to them to protect this house. And what it does is it creates not only autonomy, but it checks and balances where they're pushing down that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's amazing yeah. how humans work, where they feel if they can feel a part of the solution, they'll go along with it a lot better, too. Right. Um, and I talk about tactics, about um, you know how to attract talent and, you know, even the interview process. It's just involve your people in the process, people you know and i think it's a lot of those things of of what i think best represents this idea of autonomy
0: awesome well chris i have enjoyed this so much um i just i just adore you so much fun so much fun um i have one final question
1: oh uh oh <laughs>
0: It's not a bad one. Okay, so this podcast, it's called The Same 24 Hours, which means yes. we all have the same 24 hours in our day. It's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, pursuit of happiness and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis, maybe outside of your kind of metric of success, but something that you do on a daily basis that you can kind of point to and say, that makes
1: my day better? I mean, it's, it's 100% um, physical fitness. Um, and it was funny. I was meeting with a very successful, um, uh, executive last night and, uh, we were talking about a similar question to what you just asked me. And we both referenced Naval, um, who's a big podcaster. He does, you know, a lot of stuff around wealth building and other things. And, um, he was like, yeah, Naval was the one that inspired me to, um, actually really focus on the physical side. So um, and this this person, this this guy is also the one that I go to the gym with with uh, where we meet Tramel, who's our trainer, who absolutely destroys us <laughs> Monday, Wednesday and Friday at five thirty in the morning. Right. And, you know, it's funny, though, like ever since you know, I've been now lifting for the first time in my life, I'm a big runner, I'm a big cyclist, you know, all those things. But I'd never really lifted and it's made such an impact on yes. my life. Um, and working out, I think, with other people is like there's that camaraderie of going through the suck together that is um, refreshing. But so, I, I mean, that's my long-winded way of saying like the physical side of our health and wellness along with fueling with the right stuff. I mean, listen, I also eat half a pint of ice cream <laughs> every night. So um, <laughs> I'm not like the perfect specimen, but um, I think that we forget that the most important thing to – our day to day, um, is our, our physical, um, and health, our physical and mental health. And we don't usually put as much emphasis on it as we should. And those that do truly are the most successful people in the world. And, um, by success, I mean, you know, the most, um, well-rounded, the most, um, impactful people, not monetary.
0: Well, thank you, Chris. This was great.
1: I love it.